Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and this week I'm talking to James L. Hayward, Professor Emeritus of Biology at Andrews University, and actually someone who was a professor of mine when I was there for a class called Scientific Inquiry. This is part one of a two-part conversation that I have recorded with him about his recently published memoir, Dinosaurs, Volcanoes, and Holy Writ, A Boy Turned Scientist Journeys from Fundamentalism to Faith. And I think you're going to enjoy our conversation in part because his history parallels so many of ours growing up, beginning in a community of faith and beginning to uh, question those things, wrestling with those issues, going on to straddle the worlds of uh, community, career, professionalism, and faith. And um, Jim has always done it with such grace and generosity, even to the people who disagree with him. You'll get to hear that conversation in a minute here, but I just wanted to take this moment to invite you to become an even deeper member of the Spectrum community by participating in our Grow the Vision campaign. A generous donor has created a $100,000 matching grant, and that means that if you haven't given in a while, this is an opportunity to have any amount that you'd like to pledge to give over the next three years doubled instantly. What that means is if, you would, if you'd like to give uh, $500 each year for the next three years, that $1,500 pledge will be doubled, so it becomes $3,000 through this matching grant. So we have a deadline that's December 31st. These pledges need to be in, and this is just a gentle reminder that you can go to the Spectrum website, click any of those Grow the Vision ads, and make that pledge. If you have any questions, you can email me, alexander at spectrummagazine.org, or in the office, Linda's always uh, very helpful with any processing questions, and you can reach her at linda at spectrummagazine.org as well. I'm looking forward to sharing this conversation with you from Professor Hayward. Thanks so much. Enjoy. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. The kingdom is alive. The kingdom's on the move with the poor and the meek and the hungry and the lonely. I'll never forget it. Welcome to Adventist Voices Spectrum's podcast. I'm Alexander Carpenter, and I'm honored to be joined by James L. Hayward, Professor Emeritus of Biology at Andrews University. Thanks for talking with us today. Sure, and you can call me Jim. <laughs> Great, Jim. Uh, I really am looking forward to our conversation about your new book, Dinosaurs, Volcanoes, and Holy Writ. A Boy Turned Scientist Journeys from Fundamentalism to Faith. We're going to be talking about your personal history as well as a kind of intellectual biography. But start us with um, 
a definition here. What does fundamentalism mean to you? Well, there's actually a couple uh, ways in which to define fundamentalism. Fundamentalists in the early 20th century were a group of people who appealed to a set of documents called the fundamentals, which were created by some theologians and biblical scholars uh, in the early part of the 20th century. These people were committed to a view of infallibility of scripture. However, modern fundamentalists, that is those we think about today, uh, do indeed believe in the infallibility of scripture. But much of what modern fundamentalists believe go beyond that point. Um, And uh, I like a definition that was quoted by one person who was trying to describe fundamentalism, and it was that is the quest for certainty, exclusiveness, and unambiguous boundaries where the other is the enemy to be demonized. That, to me, characterizes what we see today in fundamentalism. It's not just an appreciation of scripture or of the efficacy of Jesus' sacrifice for us, and so on, or of the creation. It really goes beyond that. So in the book, when I use the term fundamentalist, I use it as in, in the informal sense, uh, as it could be applied to a Buddhist or a Hindu or a Jew or a Muslim or a Christian who emphasizes his or her distinctiveness by adhering to these very rigid, literalistic interpretations of sacred texts, and then essentially damning others who don't agree with those. So when I speak of fundamentalism in the book and in my conversation, that's really what I'm referring to. I'm not referring to the more formal definition of the fundamentals and the fundamentalists in the early 20th century. So we have fundamentalism, you know, the the cocoon in which you're born into the world with family that, um, you know, reads both Ellen White and the Bible literally, and you sort of set the stage of you growing up, you know, in this world and really being simpatico with it. At the same time, you also have this really interesting narrative of clearly being created by God to study the world. (laughs) And I love the the anecdotes you share of yourself as a young man, um, collecting, observing, uh, recording um, birds, mammals, you know, it goes on and on, uh, interest in rocks there as well. Um, and in a way, this, like a great movie, is building towards uh, conflict. You have two parts of you that are clearly part of uh, what makes you tick, and yet they might, um, I don't want to give away the ending of the story here, but uh, they're going. there's going to be some conflict. And I thought... I would get to, I think, an interesting point kind of ahead of time because I had a similar experience. You read Raw Numbers, 
um, the uh, former Adventist historian of, of medicine and, and science, uh, highly regarded uh, friend of Spectrum. And I uh, read that book in one night and found it riveting. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, it was while I was at Andrews University. Um, Interesting. So that isn't the main uh, uh, kind of uh, climax, but I think for folks who are connected with Spectrum, especially when whenever they encounter that kind of serious thinking, rigorous evidence presented, creates some type of, let's say, questioning, doubt. And if you could just take us to that, the, that time period, if not that moment, and say, how are you starting to try to reconcile these two parts of you? Yeah, you mentioned my early interest in nature. I was, uh, I guess I started keeping a bird list when I was seven years old. My cousin was very in instrumental in uh, getting me interested in birds. And then that got me interested in other aspects of nature. <clears throat> so as you mentioned, I collected, I collected insects, I collected rocks, I collected shells, um, ended up collecting mammals and, and so on and so forth. I had my own little museum at home. And um, so, yeah, that was a very important part of my life. The other important part of my life, of course, was my Adventism. Uh, my dad was a, an Adventist pastor and later church administrator. And um, he was very, very conservative, um, believed that virtually every word that Ellen White wrote was um, divinely inspired, uh, as well as the Bible. He emphasized Ellen White particularly strongly in our house, household. Um, sometimes he would start sentences with, she said, and with no antecedent, we always knew what who he was talking about. So she was an ever-present uh, specter in our home. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So that was important to me. And I read her books. I read the Bible. And um, I remember even in college uh, reading the, uh, the conflict series of, of her writings. I've read much of Ellen White. So, I owe actually Ellen White a great debt for the direction of my life in, in some ways. Um, I also owe my interest in nature an important debt as well. So yes, you're right. These things kind of came to a point of collision. I had read things that in Ellen White that just didn't seem to make sense to me as a person interested in science. Her, as, as I learned more as a student in college, I began to realize that there were many evidences for a very old earth. And I also began to realize that there was an awful lot of evidence for significant change in organisms over time. And this really prevent, presented a conflict in my mind because I was again, deeply imbued, if we want to say, use that old word, with Ellen White's writings. 
And I had certainly read Patriarchs and Prophets, where she talks about the creation and the flood and infidel geologists and on and on. So um, it was that collision, really, between those two aspects of my life that were important. So when I read Ron Numbers' book, it really freed me to think a little more broadly about life. I began to realize that for all, in all, for all Ellen White's qualities, she wasn't infallible. She had made some mistakes and in some cases was really unwilling to even fess up to those mistakes. Um, and so that was a huge revelation for me, just as it was for you. Um, so, yeah, that's that's kind of where the collision was. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I wanted you, you, you mentioned a, a great cast of characters in here, and I won't mention all of the names of the people, but, you know, we've got Dick Ritland, we've got uh, Leonard Brand, names that will be familiar to anyone who's paid attention to Spectrum for the last 50 years. And I love the way that you weave through this world, which can both feel familiar, but also fraught. And I'm wondering if you would reflect on the, you know, what these people mean to you, but also perhaps give us some wisdom, which is, you know, confronted with, um, you know, Ellen, the issues surrounding Ellen White's writing. Uh, you know, we know many folks who have said, that's it, I'm out of here. We also know lots of folks who have dug in, and some of the people that you mentioned, dig in hard and say, no way, no change. I will ignore this evidence or come up with a very <laughs> complex logical system to right. integrate it. Um, you... Uh, continue pressing forward. Um, and you also are able to, at times, navigate these tension-filled waters. And especially in an academic climate, and, you know, we all know the, the various people who have tried in some way to reconcile this on the church payroll, geoscience folks, who have at times had some serious conflicts. And I'm wondering, as you look back on your life, you know, what has uh, allowed, what, what have you seen works uh, that helps folks not only stick around, but stick through it with other people with whom they disagree? I think part of it is, um, developing a real sense of mystery about ultimate things. For me, that was very important. Um, when I was finishing my, my doctoral work at Washington State University, I was rooming with another Adventist fellow. And um, he asked me, he said, Did you, have you ever read Camus? And I said, no, I haven't. I, I certainly knew of him, but I had not read any of his books. He says, well, you really ought to read The Stranger. He says, it's a powerful book. And he says, I've got it and I'll loan it to you if you want. So anyway, I said, yeah, I'd like to read it. Small book. 
And I read that book and it just, I mean, it just knocked me for a, for a loop. Uh, it's one of the most powerful books I've ever read, um, illustrating what happens to a person who has no sense of meaning in life, complete nihilist. Um, basically, the, the story is this guy, the, the, the book opens, if you haven't read it, uh, the book opens with this guy at his mother's funeral, and he has no feelings at all about her or her death or his life or anything. He goes out from the funeral, and soon he's on the beach, and he, for no reason at all, shoots this guy on the beach and kills him. Well, of course, he gets picked up by the police, and again, he has no feelings about this. They're not; nothing's important to him. The last scene in the book is he is um, in prison, and he's awaiting the guillotine. And he said that his only um, his only hope was to create as much. Um, what's the word I want? No, I can't think of the word. As much um, feeling of obnoxiousness in the people who watched his execution. Um, that was it. Was written so powerfully; it was devastating to read. Yeah, and I thought to myself, "Here I am at the end of, close to the end of my uh, graduate education, and all this stuff that I've been learning about uh, evolutionary biology and how living things function, and so on and so forth, predator-prey relationships, and so on." I'm beginning to sense that I'm a little bit like this guy. <laughs> I don't have any, I'm not sure there's meaning. I've got a lot of questions. So anyway, I got my first job and I start teaching and I go through the first year of teaching. I'm really busy because I, you know, this is my first full-time job. So anyway, I get to the end of the year, the next summer, and I decide I'm going to read Chronicles of Narnia to my young daughter. Well, she was only five years old and I got into the first book and it turned out that she couldn't understand it. She was too young, but I was hooked. I had never read them before, which I'm embarrassed to say, but that, you know, when you grow up in a conservative home, that wasn't true. Those weren't true stories and uh, so on and so forth. So anyway, I read, started reading those books and I got to Voyage of the Dawn Treader, which was my favorite one. And I remember Reepicheep, those the, the talking mouse. And he was always avenging uh, the honor of his friends. And um, there was a scene in there toward the end of the book where he is, you know, it's a metaphor for his own death. And I remember the hair standing on the back of, up on the back of my neck reading that and if I've ever had a conversion experience it was then I began to realize that there was much more to life than what I had learned in my graduate education that life is far richer there are things that I can't measure that I can't count that I can't assess by science 
that are much bigger than myself. And I thought to myself, you know, if C.S. Lewis can come up with this, there must be something behind it. And so ever since then, I have been deeply committed to God's creatorship uh, and uh, my friend as Redeemer. So I'm grateful for that opportunity I had to read those books. So both The Stranger and Chronicles of Narnia were so important to me in that respect. Uh, me as well. I think I read uh, The Stranger on in Berrien Springs uh, in, <laughs> in college. Um, and, you know, the fact that you just cited two books, I think, um, is, is interesting because of the fact that this um, memoir is so literary. You open sections with uh, some riveting storytelling, and then you kind of circle back in an interesting structure, picking up that story and weaving it into uh, a larger um, narrative and, and point you're making as well. Um, I want to read one uh, thing on this thought, and then I would like to talk to you about goals. Uh, which is an important part of, of your story and, and riveting. I, I love the, the, the excitement connected to the research that you've done. But um, over 40 years later, I still think of this remark at the conflict between progressives and traditionalists as it plays out in many arenas. And then you write presuppositions about the nature of truth and reality lie at the root of all disagreements, whether scientific, religious, political, or personal. Most of the visible aspects of these disagreements lie with superficial information. And then you conclude here, true resolution occurs only if and when we find a way to resolve the differences in the presuppositions. I like the way that you really call us back to a self-awareness. And um, and I'm I'm wondering if there, as you've you know, as you've looked through you know your memories and recalled moments, are there times when you, you know you are obviously interrogating your own under you know your own epistemological framework? And I'm just wondering if was there a time when you had to cast out a presupposition, and you know what was that like, whether in your research or in your belief system? Well, sure. Um, you know, I think the maturation process is one of maybe casting out certain presuppositions. Uh, you know, early on, mom and dad are God, right? And then, I mean, essentially, and stand in the place of God. Whatever they say is, is, is true. And then you begin to realize, that, well, you know, there's a broader world out there. Mom and dad aren't the only source of information. So you, you go on and you do uh, sort of, uh, I hate to say get rid of presuppositions, but you mm -hmm. modify them, certainly, over time. Um, and certainly one of the presuppositions that, drove me, my views on things was that Ellen White, every word that Ellen White published or wrote was um, 
inspired and and was um, worthy of believing in a very literal sense. Uh, I had to scuttle that particular presupposition after reading Ron Number's book and after, you know, learning a lot of other things about her writings and so on. <clears throat> That's not to say I don't appreciate her or the Bible or any of these other sacred sort of sources, but I've tried to understand them in the context in which they were written and the, for the purpose they were written. And uh, I think that's been an important thing. So, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose that's one thing I've, one presupposition that I've had to uh, modify in the past. Um, I still believe in inspiration, but not the kind of inspiration I believed in, say, 40, 50 years ago. Let me jump in there. Uh, I have a, uh, you know, you, you, you also talk about in your research, you know, you're, as you're gaining knowledge, you're sort of refining a hypothesis. Um, and you're also convincing other members of your community. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a, a good memory of you. I think it was a Friday night Vespers. Someone was saying something about Noah's Ark. And I was having a hard time with it as a 20-year-old. You know, I'm glad we were having Vespers, but, you know, I didn't really take what this person, and this person did have some authority. Um, and I just remember looking over at you, and there was an expression in your face, and I just knew, okay, you know, I don't have to argue with this guy. Uh, we're just going to listen, and then we'll move on, and it's going to be okay. And I wondered if you have... Um, where did that uh, attitude of not necessarily thinking that you had to obliterate their presupposition, but, you know, I, I, just unpack that if you would. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I guess by nature, not a very argumentative type. And I don't like controversy. I don't like confrontation. Uh, I also feel that we are all, or most, I think most humans are or have their perspectives for honest reasons. And so people that I disagree with, I don't necessarily want to demonize. I think they have good reasons for believing the way they do or taking the positions that they do. Um, so I believe in treating people with respect regardless of their position. Um, on the other hand, I am uh, puzzled by some of the positions that people take. And I think I remember that meeting. Oh. And, uh, and I was really kind of bemused, I guess we could say, or somewhat puzzled where this came from, uh, th this view that this person had. Uh, so, yeah, I... I may be bemused about something, but I would never want to treat somebody with dishonor or disrespect because of their views. Yeah. Well, that's, I really appreciate your ethical focus as well as you, as you tell this story. Um, we're going to do this in two parts, so I don't want to get farther down the road, but I'd like to um, take this time to, for you to do a little discussion of the way that your 
research on goals, your ecological focus, your big picture approach to the questions of science have nicely paralleled the the big picture approach to your faith journey. Um, Just take us back to um, the island uh, and Protection Island. What, what What did it feel like on a good day out there as you're counting goals on a post or looking at eggs uh what 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 was i i was so i almost reconsidered my entire life and thought then i should just this sounds like heaven so take take me there <laughs> well alexander it wasn't quite heaven on the gold colony <laughs> but but i'm telling you being out yeah, a lot of island, death as well i guess there, there was a lot of death and destruction yeah um Protection Island is the National Wildlife Refuge in the Strait of Juan de Fuca in Washington State. And I spent over 30 field seasons on that island. Incredible. So I got to know it intimately, um, the birds, the vegetation, the topography, the geology. That was my my island, so to speak, in, in that sense. The experience of being out there was was truly inspirational. Um, it was a 360 degree view. I could see at night. I could see the lights of Victoria. I could see the San Juan Islands. I could see Mount Baker, the Cascade Peaks, uh, Cascade Range, including Mount Rainier, and then the Olympic Peninsula and the Olympic Mountains to the south and then out to the Strait of Juan de Fuca going out to the Pacific Ocean. It was just a stunning place to, to be. And it was close to the public. So there just wasn't much activity in terms of human activity on the island. So I was immersed in the natural world. And um, that was a powerful experience for me, not only scientifically, but also spiritually and personally. Um, it was just a wonderful place to uh, contemplate sort of ultimate realities, mm. as well as the realities of, you know, what gulls are doing over the course of a day. So, yeah, it was a broadening experience for me, for sure. In terms of counting gulls and so on, we did a lot of that, as well as counting eagles and seal seals and so on, and relating that to environmental variables. And uh, we learned a lot. We, we got to the point where we could predict with pretty good accuracy using mathematical models uh, how many animals would be in a certain place at a certain time of day. So very exciting research. It was funded by the National Science Foundation for, for quite a few years. So I look at that research as a highlight of my professional life. But I also look at my experience on Protection Island as a highlight of my personal and spiritual life as well. Beautiful. Sort of wrapping up this half of our conversation, I'd like for you to maybe reflect on the place where these two met, which was in the classroom for you. You, you know, the the academic, you, you start in your... Um, you know, if I remember, you were 27 when you started teaching. You taught at Union. You taught down at Southwestern, and then 
for your career you taught at for the rest of your career there at Andrews University. And, you know, as sitting in the classroom listening to you talk, I just appreciated the way that you wove together some uh, not only facts, but uh, a kind of approach to them, uh, a philosophical, but a methodological um, way of thinking about our reality that was uh, very helpful to me. And I come from the humanities and, you know, again, I'm again, re maybe regretting my entire life direction because if I would have just gone and paid attention to a few professors, I would have been the worst uh, scientist ever because of all the numbers that you're dealing with. But the, the kind of beauty and precision that uh, you approach these questions of, uh, of, of animals and how they relate to the environment seems to me really exciting. Um, and you mentioned reading Sam Campbell, and there's a little bit of that, you know, reading this, I'm, I'm transported to a sort of harmonious place where humans and the, and our environment, um, you know, coexist in some way. Of course, that's not ideal. And the classroom is its own kind of manufactured space. So bringing all of that together, what was your approach to the classroom, taking young Adventists and others and helping them think through these contexts on a, a general conference, um, observe space and creating a room for not only your own questions, but for questions uh, for future generations? Yeah, that's a big question. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> How does one do that? Let me just come back to something you said about science and humanities. <laughs> I'm a huge respecter of the humanities. I, you're, and yeah, yeah it's, it's so important. And, uh, you know, science can only address a narrow range of questions, really, about reality. Humanities, the humanities can address a much broader range of questions about reality. And that's a real gift to be able to participate in the humanities area because you have so much that you can explore uh, in, a, in a meaningful way. And I, that's not to say anything negative about science, but it is quite restricted in where, where it can go. Uh, so, yeah. Well, thank you. In Professor Mode again, you have reassured me and I will press on. Yeah, no, the humanities are huge. I think, frankly, let me just say this. I think the humanities are more important than science because the humanities are what um, lead us to, the, uh, to, our, to our way of thinking. They give us principles to live by. They create our ethics and so on and so forth. So I, I really do think the humanities in some are really more important than, than the sciences, even though they're important as well. So anyway, getting to your question about the classroom, I always felt that I had a pastoral role, role to play in the classroom. I was never interested in shocking students with information. However, I did feel an obligation as a science professor to present students with accurate information. 
and broad-based information. I wanted students to come out of my course courses with an understanding of the facts that would help them in further education in other courses, in maybe graduate school or medicine or whatever they were planning to do in the future. <clears throat> so in that sense, uh, yeah, I, I wanted to be honest, forthright, but at the same time pastoral on my teaching. And that's what I seek to achieve. I don't know if I always did. I taught a course called Issues and Origins and Speciation, which is a graduate course. Taught that for many years at Andrews. And we had people in there who were from mainland China who never who didn't understand what Christianity was about, maybe never even heard the name Jesus. Uh, certainly didn't understand the difference between Catholics and Protestants, uh, all the way to fundamentalist Adventists, people that had grown up like I had grown up and still re remained in that particular thought mode. So I had quite a stretch of personalities and commitments to accommodate. Um, but again, the way I approached that was to first tell them a little bit about my journey uh, and also to be completely honest and upfront with them about the evidence, but also give them mul multiple views to explore. I never felt it was my responsibility to um, force them into my particular perspective. And so, yeah, that's basically how I tried to, to um, approach my teaching. Again, it was the, the pastoral approach, I think, was so important for me and still is. And I think, you know, some people who have read the book wouldn't believe that and have been very highly critical of it. But in fact, that is what I really wanted to convey in the book as well. Um, unfortunately, pick, people tend to pick out things that they disagree with and focus on those and maybe ignore some of the larger views. But um, yeah, that's very important. I think we all could benefit by treating people with respect and integrity. I think those two things are so important. Yes, I agree. And uh, I think the, the part of the book that we've covered thus far, the first half, are, are about kind of weaving together these approaches, the son of a pastor going off, confronting these uh, major issues. Um, so, and you've set it up nicely because we'll be talking about some difficult questions that face Adventists as they try to think to reconcile or at least create some sort or at least reduce the tension between faith and science. And I think some helpful approaches for, uh, you know, dealing with not only the question in our own um, minds, but also how we uh, help our larger community wrestle with these issues as well. Thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you, Alexander. Really appreciate it. Yes, I knew Sister White. We will not fear. 
the kingdom is alive.